0: Mark 6, starting in verse 1, says, Then he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. So Jesus comes to Nazareth, his own country, and he teaches in the synagogue. Mark doesn't give us any content of what Jesus teaches. This may be the same event as we read about in Luke in chapter four, where Jesus reads from the prophet Isaiah, or it may just be the same time period or visit. He may have been there more than one Sabbath day. You know, during this period of time, there may have been different visits, different events. We don't we don't have that information, uh, but. In both events, there's a very similar reaction by the people. And in in Luke, they actually become violent. Uh, Luke chapter 4 and verse 16 is this other account uh, where it says, So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. Interesting, Jesus' custom was to attend synagogue, worship the Lord. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And so they went on very similar vein to what we read here in Mark, uh, except they took him to a cliff and were going to toss him over the edge. And it says he passed through their midst and he was fine. But we're told that they are offended at him when he comes back home. They, first of all, are offended by his claims. They are flabbergasted by him, which means to be an intense shock, surprise, and wonder at him. They are surprised at his teachings and his wisdom. This is a kid who grew up in the neighborhood. Jesus apparently kept a low profile when growing up in Nazareth. He did nothing before the time appointed by the Father. No miracles, no teachings, no extraordinary claims. The false Gnostic Gospels contain extraordinary accounts of childhood miracles, like Jesus uh, speaking as an infant. You know, he kind of gives a sermon to his mom. Or making clay birds and then bringing them to life, you know. This is the stuff of pagan religion. No such things occurred in Jesus' life. And if they had, the people would have reacted somewhat differently to the adult Jesus. The biblical gospels are grounded in reality. They are not nonsensical. Jesus never did anything without a purpose. And he did not get ahead of God's direction for his life. It would be great to have such wisdom in our lives today. But this was constant with Jesus. So they are offended by his wisdom because of their familiarity with who they think him to be. Maybe they considered him uppity. They didn't like his attitude or what they deduced his attitude to be. We know that he's lowly and humble in heart. But his neighbors may think he's making himself out to be something that he's not. Someone higher than they think they know him to be. He grew up there, but they do not perceive who he truly is. He was that kid down the street. In John chapter 1 verses 11 and 12, John writes and says, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. And of course, he's speaking of the wider nation of Israel, but it certainly applies here in Nazareth. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God to those who believe in his name. There's a a birth that takes place as a child when a person places their faith in the name of Jesus, representing all that he is and all that he does. Isn't he the carpenter, they say? Doesn't his family live right here among us? Who does he think he is? In Luke, they ask, isn't he Joseph's son? In Matthew, isn't he the carpenter's son? No, he's not. No doubt in Nazareth, they knew the history of the family. And the report of his conception and birth. Apparently they didn't buy it. A virgin conception. Right. Maybe they considered it a good cover story. You know, she was pregnant before the proper time. So they refer to him as Mary's son. You know, this would have been good fodder for the gossip mills. Lane says the additional phrase, the son of Mary, is probably disparaging. It was contrary to Jewish usage to describe a man as the son of his mother, even when she was a widow, except in insulting terms. Rumors to the effect that Jesus was illegitimate appear to have circulated in his own lifetime and may lie behind this reference as well. You know, the Pharisees, when they opposed him, they, they alluded to this idea that Jesus was... You know, we know who our father is, but you... you know. J. Campbell Morgan says, how, how much of suspicion and contempt may have lurked behind that particular description of him? Now, thinking of Joseph as Jesus' father was a natural thing to do, but it was incorrect. He was Jesus' foster father. How would you like to have that responsibility, raising God's kid? No pressure, you know. (laughs) In one way, it would be the easiest job ever. He was a good kid. The best ever. Never caused trouble except perhaps by being too good. That was my problem as a kid growing up. Ha, ha, ha. (laughs) But even Mary fell into the practice of calling Joseph Jesus' father. You remember the incident when Jesus was 12 years old and his family went up to the Feast of Passover. It's in Luke chapter 2. Starting in verse 46, You know they had been there and, and they were headed back home and they, a day into the journey, they checked to see where Jesus was. They thought he was with some relatives. He wasn't there. And so they had to go back to Jerusalem and look for him. And verse 46, it says, Now so it was that after three days they found him in the temple sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. He was a 12-year-old. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and his answers. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when they saw him, they were amazed. That is his mom and dad. His mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. She refers to Joseph as his father. And he said to them, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? And they did not understand. They were like, well, the carpentry shop, that's back in Nazareth. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't understand the statement which, which he spoke to them. And then he went down with him and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. You know, people wonder about those 18 silent years, they call them, what was going on there. He was being subject to his parents and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men so Jesus went to Nazareth and was subject that is obedient to Joseph and Mary he grew up and learned the carpentry trade Jewish sons were always taught a trade so that they could earn a living even if they worked at something else later and we know Paul often supported himself and his companions by his tent making skills uh, even while proclaiming the gospel. So the Nazarenes, those living in Nazareth, not those who took the vow of a Nazareth, these Nazarenes thought, isn't he the guy who makes yokes for our cattle? What wonderful yokes those would be. Can you imagine the cows if they could speak? Boy, I never had a yoke that fit like this yoke. This is great. <laughs> Didn't he hang our cabinets? We still have that coffee table he built, don't we? Oh, what's coffee? (laughs) Doesn't he have that wooden spatula company? You know, divine chef. There's an old song by uh, Bob Bennett. It's his first album, I think. It's called Carpenter Gone Bad. (laughs) Question mark. And the song says, Do you think he's who he says he is or a carpenter gone bad? And so this carpentry, you know, this idea that he was a received from Debbie Brammer. Oh. Thank you. Uh oh. Drop <laughs> drop polo. Throughout the century some people have thought that Jesus' employment as a carpenter somehow discredited his message. You know, it was like he was known as a carpenter. Ancient Rome there was a terrific persecution under the Emperor Julian. And at that time, a philosopher mocked a Christian, asking him, what do you think the carpenter's son is doing now? And the Christian answered, he's building a coffin for Julian. (laughs) (laughs) So the people who were Jesus's neighbors were offended at him because of his claims and because of their familiarity with him remember John the Baptist, when he was having doubts, he was in prison and he sent some of his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one who's coming or are we supposed to look for somebody else? And Jesus did these miracles in front of them and said, tell John, blessed is he who is not offended because of me. And many people are offended at Jesus. You don't want to be there because you're only going to be blessed if you're not offended with him. Um, It also speaks of him, the Old Testament prophecies, as a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. In Isaiah chapter 8, verses 13 and 14, it says, The Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. He will be as a sanctuary but as a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel, as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. He was a stumbling block because they couldn't perceive who he was, the claims he was making. But it says he will be a sanctuary. It was a sanctuary for those who believed in his name. This rejection by family and friends is also the case with many who are converted to faith in Jesus. Their friends or family know their past and their background. They aren't ready to accept that such a change is genuine. Give it time. It'll wear off. It's another fad, like the last 10 or 20. Let's wait and see what's next. And we must confess, if we're honest, that change is not total overnight. There should be significant change. If there's no change, then questioning a man's conversion is legitimate. But sanctification, we know, is a process. First, we're we're sanctified, justified before Him legally, in a legal sense, when we come to believe in Him and we experience that justification of Jesus. Then there's the sanctification that takes place in our life as uh, the Holy Spirit works on us to conform us more and more to the image of the Lord Jesus. And so there's a daily process of sanctification. That means holiness. We're being made holy, which is... Set apart for him. And then, of course, there's that final stage of sanctification when the Lord comes for us. And when the resurrection comes and we are changed into his likeness. And we are totally holy as he is, totally sanctified. That's something to look forward to and something to strive toward as well. At any rate, the people of Nazareth reject the claims of Jesus. They reject him as being who he claims to be. And so Jesus says a prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now they had heard about him. They, they were saying, who is he that these mighty works are done? Uh, but they weren't talking about in their city. They were talking about things they'd heard that he had done in other places. We know his brothers didn't believe in him until after the resurrection. Thank God for his long suffering. How many times has he dealt with us according to mercy and grace? We, went, we mentioned before when Jesus' mother and brothers were outside the house earlier in chapter 3 that these brothers and sisters are the children of Joseph and Mary. They are not cousins or other relatives. Jesus had, or we might say has, four half-brothers, And at least two half sisters. We just know his sisters are with them. We don't know how many they are. It's plural. They're children of his mother Mary, but not his father, the Most High God. And uh, we read or mentioned before that Tertullian referred to them as uterine siblings of Jesus. They shared the same womb at different times. His brothers are named for us, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. These believed in Jesus after the resurrection, and they were present in the upper room, and they were praying with the apostles and other disciples gathered there, according to Acts 1.14. Two of Jesus' brothers, half-brothers, wrote letters in the New Testament, James and Judas. Paul identifies James as the Lord's brother. James identifies himself in his letter as a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't claim any special relationship. And Judas, or Jude, identifies himself in his letter as a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. (laughs) As we also mentioned previously, these family relationships are contrary to the Roman Catholic doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary. She and Joseph had natural children, as recorded here. We should always honor Scripture, God's Word, over tradition or theology or social sciences or whatever. Even settled science because the Scriptures will be found to be true. We honor Mary as we do other biblical saints who are examples to us of faithfully serving God. There's nothing wrong and much right with that. I would say one more thing about it at this time. Can someone be saved while believing in the doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary? Just speaking of this as as an example of a erroneous doctrine. Let's be clear that salvation comes by believing in or trusting in, not mere intellectual assent to, the gospel of Christ Jesus. And the gospel is defined for us in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 1. Paul writes and says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand. This receiving of the gospel is what brings salvation. By which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Who did Paul receive that from? He received it from Jesus. <laughs> and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. And that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. And then last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. He seen by Paul much later after the resurrection so that's salvation is based on believing the gospel we may have misconceptions as individual believers we may believe things that are inconsistent with scripture at least until we perceive it and make corrections to our thinking but the seriousness or consequences of such errors is dependent upon the error itself do any of us have perfect understanding I don't think so. It's not diff- difficult to know and believe the major doctrines of the Bible. And there's no excuse for not knowing and believing those those major doctrines. They're They're plainly set forth. But the question is, if we have an error in our thinking, does the error undermine or subtly change the gospel itself? Does it lead me to trust in something or someone instead of... Or alongside Jesus. In the case of Mary, does a belief in her perpetual virginity result in an exaltation of her above Jesus, or even on an equal footing with him? And for many people, it does. She's seen as a mediator besides Jesus, or an in between person, in between a person and Jesus, or even a redeemer alongside him. And this is serious error indeed and a critical spiritual problem. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. There's only that one person between us and God. If you have a mediator other than the Lord Christ Jesus, you have a huge problem. Jesus is your high priest as a believer and he's the only one who is to be between you and God. His role is to intercede with God on your behalf. He's also termed your advocate or your defender. He's your defense attorney before the judgment seat of God. 1 John 2.1 His work for you did not end upon the cross or with the resurrection. He continues to work for you to present you without spot or blemish before the throne of God. Do not place anyone else between you and the God of your salvation, not a priest or a pastor, not Mary, not saints, not anyone else. He is your Savior. Anytime we hold to a false belief, we negate Scripture and we diminish the reality of our relationship with God, however slightly or perhaps greatly. God has given us Scripture to help bring our thinking into alignment with His truth. We are sanctified and cleansed, we're told, with the washing of water by the word. That's part of the sanctification process, Ephesians 5.26. We are to be renewed in the spirit of our mind, Ephesians 4.23. And we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, Romans 12.2. That's how our minds are transformed, is through his word. I years ago we listened to Barry McGuire in the second chapter of Acts. And we went to a concert once over in Carbondale. This was ancient history. I was young. <laughs> and so uh, we were there and he was talking. Uh, this was recorded as well in uh, one of the other venues where they played. But he was talking about being brainwashed, you know. And the people telling him, oh, you Christians are all brainwashed. And Mary said, yeah, that's right. He said, I needed something to wash my brain. <laughs> So we get that renewing of our minds through bringing our thinking, our minds into into alignment with the scriptures. So correct doctrine, which means what the Bible teaches, is vitally important, but it alone is not enough. I was reading something by D. Martin Lloyd-Jones recently, and he said, The man whose doctrine is shaky will be shaky his whole life. There is nothing so fatuous, that's the word I had to look up. Nina knows the definition. (laughs) Fatuous means foolish or silly, especially in a smug or self-satisfied way. There is nothing so fatuous as the view that Christian doctrine is removed from life. There's nothing which is more practical. He said, I always find that those who are driven with every wind of doctrine are those who are too lazy to study doctrine. And then he said this, I spend half my time telling Christians to study doctrine and the other half telling them that doctrine is not enough. And that is true. He says, My observation over the years is that it is the people who have not been taught the truth negatively as well as positively who always get carried away by the heresies and cults because they have not been forewarned and forearmed against them. So correct doctrine. It's very important. It's essential even but it's not enough in itself. Doctrine gives us knowledge of God, knowledge of Jesus, knowledge of the gospel, but it is not the same as putting faith in that gospel. Some trust in their doctrine rather than trusting in the person and work of Christ Jesus. Are we trusting in doctrine or the giver of the doctrine? Doctrine alone cannot save. Only Jesus can save. Doctrine points to Jesus for salvation. It directs us as how to put our trust in him. You learn who this Jesus is from the teaching of the Bible, our doctrine. But doctrine alone cannot save. Only the Jesus you learn about by doctrine can save. Now this can become a vicious cycle if you're trusting in doctrine and not in the giver of the doctrine. How do I know when it's enough? Have I believed enough doctrine? Have I found enough of it? But it is a blessed cycle. A comforting cycle if you're trusting in Jesus and learning from the teachings that he gives. You know Jesus even if you know little else. A new believer knows Jesus. Non-believers who study and know well what the Bible teaches do not know Jesus. They can spiel off for you all the doctrine that the Bible says, but they don't believe it. And they don't know Jesus. The Pharisees trusted in their doctrine rather than the author of the doctrine. But, of course, their doctrine was not based on the scriptures alone as it should have been, but also on their traditions and suppositions. And this resulted in severe conflict with Jesus, the giver of doctrinal truth, to the point of them plotting and securing his execution. Someone can emphasize doctrine in an ungodly way, using it to exalt themselves as superior, just as many of the Pharisees did. There can be an ungodly attitude of pride in my knowledge of doctrine. Sometimes I emphasize the importance of doctrine without emphasizing why it's important. So I hope this brings some clarity. If we've been granted a good understanding of biblical teachings, that's a cause for humility and not pride. Having the wrong attitude shows that we do not understand the purpose of correct doctrine. Correct understanding of doctrine is a blessing, but a knowledge of doctrine can also be a downfall if there is an attitude of pridefulness. I hope that makes sense. Uh, we looked the last time we were Mark. We looked at John five thirty nine and forty, where he was speaking to the Jews, the religious Jews, and he said, "You Jews, search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. But these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me, that you may have life." You come to Jesus by faith, not by knowing the right stuff. You you have to apply that doctrine. So they they search the Scriptures in order to build their self-righteousness, to justify themselves before God by their knowing and keeping the law, not realizing that He's the fulfillment of the law and that the Scriptures point to Him as the remedy for their failure to keep the law. But they were not willing to give up their self-righteousness in order to find forgiveness in the only place it can be found. First Corinthians 8 verses 1 and 2, Paul writes about knowledge and he's speaking of knowledge of idolatry and idols. He says in verse 1, concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And that puffing up is with pride. Knowledge puffs up. Now, knowledge with love, that's a good thing. You know, if we're uh, expressing the love of the Holy Spirit, knowledge apart from love is not a good thing. I mean, knowledge is good, but it has to be used knowledgeably. Right? Like the law is lawful if you use it lawfully. He says, if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. Right? That, was, that was always like, what? You know, <laughs> he's talking attitude. That's why he's talking about attitude. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. It seems that Joseph has passed from the scene by this time. Here in Mark 6. Mary, Jesus' brothers and sisters are there and spoken of, but there's no mention of Joseph. As the eldest son, the firstborn, Jesus would have been responsible for providing for the family after the death of Joseph, at least until the others were mature or married he would have ensured that his mother was cared for and he finally committed her into the Apostle John's care uh, while on the cross. And we come to Mark 6, 5 and 6. It says, now he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. I think that would be pretty good if I could lay my hands on a few sick people and heal them, you know. I'd say, wow, you know, that's great. (laughs) But it's like, oh, that's all he could do, you know. (laughs) (laughs) and he marveled because of their unbelief, and then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. I think this is an interesting scripture. He could do no mighty work there. I think we have to understand this in the context of how God has determined or chosen the way in which he will deal with mankind. Why could he do no mighty work there? It says he marveled because of their unbelief. God has chosen to interact with man on the basis of faith. As we've uh, quoted Hebrews 11:6 many times, without faith it's impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is, and He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. We must say that it's not exclusively so that He only deals with us on the basis of faith. God is gracious, and many times He meets our needs when there is an apparent lack of faith on our part. Sometimes we're surprised by God's answer, answer to prayer. We weren't really expecting it. I mean, consider Zacharias and Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist. Zacharias is an old man. He goes into the temple to burn incense, chosen for this task, and there's the angel Gabriel standing there telling him, and what's he say to him? Your prayer has been answered. Your prayers have been answered, Zacharias. Really? What prayer is that? You know, A prayer for the Son, you know? And they, I mean, they had given up on this. They were advanced in years, it says. Sometimes God fulfills a thing. And sometimes it's a faith that endures that is rewarded. But Zacharias was clearly like, "Uh, you sure you can fulfill this prayer? You sure this is what you... So sometimes God surprises us with grace and with mercy and with goodness. But generally... Faith is the instrument that God has chosen to use as a catalyst for working among and through his people. And we see this reflected in Jesus' earthly ministry. Mark says he could do no mighty work there. But let's be clear again. Jesus could do anything he desired to do at any time. But he only did those things the Father commanded that yes, he do. There's no limit to his power or his ability. Jesus spoke often of faith faith. Encouraged the people to have faith in God, marveled at their lack of or little faith. This is the usual, or we might say approved method of relating to and following God. We saw the place of faith in Mark's gospel, in the healing of the woman with the flow of blood and the raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead. Both those situations, he says, you know, believe, and, and he told the woman, your faith has made you well. But there were times when Jesus did things apart from the faith of the people, perhaps on the basis of his own faith as the son of the father, the son of man. they calmed the storm apart from anyone else's faith. They they certainly when they woke him, they weren't expecting that. They were I think they were probably thinking he could help bail or, you know, we know he's a carpenter but maybe he could do a little bit with an oar, you know, or something. He raised the son of the widow of Nain and also Lazarus apart, apart from the faith of anyone else. He cast out the legion of unclean spirits apart from anyone's expectation. He can do anything he wants, any anytime he wants. But he only does those things that the Father directs him to do. Someone has said of Jesus not doing any mighty work in Nazareth, I quote, this was in respect to God's principle of partnership with man. God may work with no belief, but not with unbelief. again, God may work with no belief, but not with unbelief. With no belief, He does what He desires to do according to His own will. But He does not reward recalcitrant unbelief with further proofs that will be rejected. That's the place of faith and unbelief. He won't reward stubborn unbelief with further proofs. You know, they were always asking Him for signs. And He said... No sign's gonna be given except the sign of Jonah. No sign to this generation. He did not do signs for signs' sake. I mean here's a guy going around, he's healing people, he's raising people from the dead, he's casting out demons, and they say show us a sign. Right. So the Lord knows each person individually and he deals with each of us in exactly the right way. God's dealings with man are tailored to the individual, not one size fits all. And so Jesus did not do many miracles, signs or healings when the people were walking in unbelief as here in Nazareth. This is a self-limitation by Jesus and not an intrinsic limitation. Matthew's account says it this way, Matthew thirteen fifty-eight. Now he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. He did not because God desires faith on the part of man. And again, generally, this is God's basis of ministering to his people. There's a great message by Pastor Chuck Smith called Unbelief the Thief. You probably still get it on the Word for Today. Maybe a cassette tape. I think they're all online now. Unbelief is a robber or a burglar stealing blessings from God's people that they would otherwise enjoy. And not just mighty works or healings, but also peace and rest, even joy and love. All the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It is by faith in Him that we find our rest, that we enjoy His fruit. We won't find it in the world. We won't find it in our health or prosperity because they will depart at some point. There was a story told about a guy who was always eating right and working out and he was just a total healthy specimen. And at the end of his life, he was in the hospital and he was embarrassed because here he was dying of nothing. (laughs) You won't find peace or life in the myriad of things that we people try to satisfy ourselves with. Now, it is, in faith, it, it is faith in what God has said that, and done that brings salvation. Paul wrote, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Romans 1.16 Also, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Romans 10.17 And it's written, God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. In Romans 12.3 Jesus marveled sometimes at our little faith. The Faith was not little because God was unwilling to measure out more. Faith must be exercised, stretched, and built up. Simply believe what God has said. That is faith. We know what God has done from what He has said. I mean, we didn't see any of this. We only have His Word. And so it's on the basis of believing what God has said that we know what He has done and the things that have taken place. Jesus told Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Do we believe it? Psalm 78 speaks of Israel in the wilderness. And uh, goes through a litany of the things that they were tempting God with. In verse 37 of Psalm 78, he says, Their heart was not steadfast with Him, nor were they faithful in His covenant. But he, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. Yes, many a time he turned his anger away and did not stir up all his wrath. For he remembered that they were but flesh, a breath that passes away and does not come again. How often they provoked him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. And it says, yes, again and again, they tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. They were not believing. Verse 42, they did not remember his power the day when he redeemed them from the enemy, when he worked his signs in Egypt and his wonders in the field of Zoan. They limited him by their unbelief. Someone has said the only limitation to omnipotence is unbelief. But this is only because the omnipotent one has chosen that it be so. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. These folks did not remember his power, his works, or his love. It was not that he could not do more. It was because he has chosen to interact with people, pour out his blessings on his people, fill his people with his spirit, etc. through the vehicle of faith. All his promises are apprehended by faith. In Jesus it is written, all the promises of God in him are yes and in him amen to the glory of God through us. Those promises are only apprehended by faith. saying Corinthians one twenty. Faith honors God. It gives God His proper place in our lives. Our first parents fell through unbelief. Eve believed the serpent rather than God's word through Adam. And Adam went along with the program. He was the guilty one. In scripture, unbelief is equated with disobedience. The two are inevitably linked. The book of Hebrews speaks of these same Israelites in the wilderness. And we'll look at a few short passages. You can read the entire chapters. Uh, We'll do this just for the sake of time. You can check out the context. Uh, Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness. He's quoting from Psalm 95. So the people were rebellious when they heard the voice of the Lord. Uh, Down in uh, chapter 3 and verse 12, it says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. We see that they uh, disobeyed because they did not believe what God said. Hebrews 3, verses 18 and 19, He says, To whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. They disobeyed because they did not believe. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, he says, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it, for indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. Because they didn't believe the word, they didn't follow the word, they disobeyed. And then in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 6 through 11, he says this Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, Again he designates a certain day saying in David, Today, after such a long time as it has been said, today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God, for he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. This rejection of what God has said led them to disobedience. And so unbelief has its consequences. J.G. Miller warns, Such unbelief as this has immense consequences for evil. It closes the channels of grace and mercy so that only a trickle gets through to human lives in need. Unbelief ultimately leads to a rejection of the Lord and His means of salvation. That is the most dire consequence of unbelief. Yet even among those who believe in Him as their Savior, many struggle with unbelief in daily matters or in the call of God upon their lives for service or in boldness for the Lord. It is by faith in the Lord that we overcome the world and all that is in the world there is no other means of overcoming. 1 John 5.4 4. Faith can be defined as simply believing what God has said. And when you believe, you follow. Trusting in His Word above all other voices that vie for respectability. No other voice is deserving of the respect of which the Word of God is worthy. Later in Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, verse 35. You know, the the message of the book of Hebrews can seem very harsh. Uh, it was there was a it was like a loud trumpet warning sound, you know, an alarm going off. But it's not intended to be condemnatory. But it issues this warning and also issues encouragement to continue in Jesus, abiding in the vine. In verse 35 of Hebrews 10, he says, Therefore do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come, and will not tarry, Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition. But of those who believe to the saving of the soul. So after this experience of Nazareth, Jesus didn't stop teaching or slow down. He didn't, you know, get down in the dumps because he was rejected. Nor should we draw back from our witness and sharing the gospel if rejected. Jesus moved on, as should we, leaving the results up to his father. He went and preached in the villages surrounding the area in a circuit. He was one of the original circuit preachers. Uh, Back in the days of Jehoshaphat, we saw this on Thursday night, this revival that was under Jehoshaphat. He sent out men throughout the land of Israel to share the word of God and to encourage the people. And he sent out worship teams and things like that. 2 Kings 17, you can read about this, uh, you know, Jehoshaphat wasn't a perfect king. He was rebuked twice for making alliances, with uh, one with Ahab and one with his, his son. You know, But he exhibited faith in the Lord and sought to draw people uh, to the Lord for worship. So Jesus goes around to these villages in a circuit ministering. And, and these villages are small venues. Right. Uh, one of my favorite music groups is the Lost Dogs. They'll, they'll probably never be together again. There were four of them from different Christian groups that came together, and one of them's home with the Lord now, so that led to the song, of A Three Legged Dog. <laughs> he's a three legged dog, but he's still pretty good. As long as he's moving and he's not in pain, I'm going to hang on to my three legged dog. Well, they're not moving as good as they did. <laughs> anyway, so... At times, a couple of them would go out and do things on tour, and the other ones weren't available. And so, um, one year, I don't remember what year. Uh, pardon? Barbecue? Backyard barbecues. Uh, they did house concerts, and they would they just send out this notice: "Anybody wants this to come?" And they would they actually grilled out barbecue for whatever family you know they came to at the house. Uh, And they had this special sauce. I've got a bottle, the empty bottle. You know, I didn't get a full bottle. (laughs) But they were in Owensboro in somebody's backyard. You know, and so we heard about it. We were able to go over there. And I don't know what were there, 10 or 12 people maybe at most. Yeah, the kids went next door to swim. They weren't really that interested, you know. So it was like... (laughs) And uh, when I was like, oh, maybe next year the youth will accept us, you know. <laughs> but uh, as they were playing, you know, it was uh, Terry Taylor, Micro, and as they were playing, Micro said, "Yeah, we used to play the big backyards." <laughs> Is that for next That's a play for next week. Yeah, you're you're on the stage. <laughs> so it's not always the size of the venue, you know. It's who are you called to minister to. There's a story told about Dr. C.I. Schofield, a doctor. He's the man who was responsible for the Schofield Reference Bible, and he had been invited to speak in a church in North Carolina. Because it was a rainy night, about 25 people came to the meeting. The young preacher leaned over and apologized to Dr. Schofield for the small number who had come to hear his, his preaching and teaching, and Dr. Schofield replied, young man, My Lord only had 12 men in his school and in his congregation most of the time. If he had only 12, who is C.I. Schofield to be concerned about a big crowd? Another guy, Terry Clark, who uh, he's led worship. He and his wife the last few years at the uh, family retreat uh, that we went to in April. And uh, there's a video that he's he's in. It's another uh, situation, you know. But he's talking about the ministry that the Lord had called him to. And he said he'll come, you know, wherever he's invited. And he he said he, you know, got invited somewhere. And this happened more than once was the impression he gave it. when he got invited to come and do a concert, he got there. The only person there was the guy that invited him to come and do the concert because nobody else showed up, you know. His comment was, in that case, I know who I am there to minister to. I don't have any questions about it, you know. Uh, J. Vernon McGee said, Imagine, friends, the Lord of Glory, the Son of God here on this earth, ministering in little villages, which is what this was. He could have sent a telegram over to Rome. Well, he could have, even without the telegraph system, I guess. (laughs) He could have sent a telegram over to Rome and hired the Colosseum for a big meeting. Today we have men who are suffering from megalomania. They feel they have to have a big crowd. All of us need to learn a lesson from Jesus. But well, we can never tell what the outcome of sharing the gospel with someone will be or what impact it may have for eternity. D.L. Moody was one of the greatest evangelists of modern times. He was working as a shoe salesman and was converted through the witness of his Sunday school teacher. He went to the store, you know. It was like he got such a burden for him he went to the store to, to witness to him. Many who, are, many who in faithful witness have had a great impact upon the world are anonymous. We don't know the shoes or the Sunday uh, school teacher's name. I don't. It may be available out there, but everybody knows the name of every believer knows the name of D. O. Moody probably. On Thursday nights we've been going through Isaiah, and we came to Isaiah 45:22 where. Uh, I, well, the Lord speaking through him, said, he says, Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. And uh, one of the commentaries I was reading was talking about Spurgeon and his conversion. Most people know who C.H. Spurgeon is. He was headed to church one morning. Um, Sabbath, you know, Sunday morning, what they call the Sabbath day. And so he's headed to church, but there was a... a a snowstorm, a big snowstorm that came through London. And so he wasn't able to get to the church he was planning on going to. But he came to a small chapel, a Methodist chapel. You know, he was ended up being Baptist. He wasn't Methodist. He came to this Methodist chapel. And after ten minutes or so, they realized that the preacher was not being, going to be able to show up because of the storm. And so a deacon got up and began to speak. And this was his text. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth for I'm God and there's no other. And, uh, you know, you can find the testimony and read it. It's a, it's a great uh, longer story. Um, but, uh, you know, Spurgeon comments, you know, he didn't have much else to say. But, you know, so he kept repeating this over and over. <laughs> and uh, it was having an impact upon Spurgeon. He was sitting there and, and he says, at one point, he pointed to where I was sitting under the gallery. So he, this guy points at Spurgeon. It's not recommended when you're doing sermons, you know. I mean, you get accused of preaching at people enough without it actually being so, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> I know. And he's my, yeah. At one point, Spurgeon says, he pointed to where I was sitting under the gallery. And he said, that young man there looks very miserable. <laughs> I expect I did, for that's how I felt. Then he said, "There is no, or there is, yeah, there is no hope for you, young man, or any chance of getting rid of your sin, but by looking to Jesus." And he shouted, as I think only a primitive Methodist can. Do we still have primitive Methodists? He shouted, as only I think only a primitive Methodist can. Look, look, young man, look now, and I did look. As I went home, it seemed as if all nature was in accord with that blessed deliverance from sin, which I had found in a single moment by looking to Jesus Christ. You know, C. H. Spurgeon may have been the the first um, mega church pastor. Thousands of people in that tabernacle, I think up to eight thousand or something, and he must have had some lungs that I didn't get, you because know, <laughs> they could they didn't have the amplification systems, and people could hear him. But who's this deacon? Anybody know the deacon? Everybody knows Spurgeon. Spurgeon had this major impact upon the world. Nobody knows the deacon. Will the deacon get a reward? Will the Sunday school teacher get a reward? Will they be part of everything that's happened in these other men's ministries? I think they will. So never feel like if you're witnessing somebody, ministering somebody, that it's of little consequence. We don't know. Until it's you know, uh, I'm trying to think of a saying. Well, you just never know what the outcome is going to be. You know, it's it's never over till it's over. Any great preacher or well-known servant of the Lord Jesus that you can think of, at some point, had someone witness to them, and they were converted. The one who sowed the seed may remain unknown, even to themselves at times. You don't know what happens to those people you witness to that you haven't seen again. But the fruit of their witness will one day be well known. And so we are encouraged to keep on keeping on. First Corinthians 15, 57 and 58 says, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Never in vain. Galatians 6, 9. Paul writes and says, Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Never give up. Never, never give up. Let's not let unbelief rob us of the blessings of God. Let us not be offended by Jesus if He does not do the things we think He should do when we think He should do them. Let's just have simple faith in the Lord. Believe what He says. And act upon what He says.